You came to talk about the play, he said. Let me discourage you. It was written to entertain people, like horror movies. It isn't literature. It doesn't mean anything. Warfinger was no Shakespeare. Who was he, she said. Who was Shakespeare? It was a long time ago. Could I see the script? She didn't know what she was looking for exactly. Driblet motioned her over to a file cabinet next to the one shower. I better grab a shower, he said, before the drop the soap crowd get here. Scripts in the top drawer. But they were all purple, ditto, worn, torn, stained with coffee. Nothing else in the drawer. Hey, she yelled into the shower. Where's the original? What did you make these copies from? A paperback, Dribblet yelled. Don't ask me the publisher. I found it at Zapp's used books by the freeway. It's an anthology. Jacobean revenge plays. There was a skull on the cover. Could I borrow it? Somebody took it. Opening night parties. I lose half a dozen every time. He stuck his head out of the shower. The rest of his body was wreathed in steam, giving him an eerie, balloon-like buoyancy. Careful, staring at her with a deep amusement, he said, There was another copy there. Zap might still have it. Can you find the place? Something came to her viscera, danced briefly, and went. Are you putting me on? For a while, the furrowed eyes only gazed back. Why, Driblet said at last, is everyone so interested in texts? Who else? Maybe he had only been talking in general. Driblet's head wagged back and forth. Don't drag me into your scholarly disputes, adding, whoever you all are, with a familiar smile. Oedipa realized then that it was exactly the same look he'd coached from each of his cast to give whatever the subject of the Tristero assassins came up. The knowing look you get in your dreams from a certain unpleasant figure. She decided to ask about this look. Was it written in as the stage direction, all those people so obviously in on something? Or was that one of your touches? That was my own, Driblet told her. That and actually bringing the three assassins on stage in the fourth act. Warfinger didn't show them at all, you know. Why did you... Had you heard about them someplace else? You don't understand. You guys, you're like the Puritans are about the Bible, sung hung up on the words. Words! You know where that play exists? Not in the filing cabinet. Not in any paperback you're out there looking for. But... A hand emerged from the veil of the shower steam to indicate his suspended head. In here! That's what I'm for. To give the spirit flesh. The words! Who cares? They're rote noises to hold the line bashes with. To get past the bone barriers around an actor's memory, right? But in reality... In this head, mine, I'm the projector at the planetarium. All the closed little universe visible in a circle of that stage is coming out of my mouth, eyes, something other orifices too. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Balls and this is 42 Minutes, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers oh, of our day. A production of SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's Saturday night, January 20th, and this is the winter installment of the 42 Minutes Seasonal Book Club. Tonight with us, we feature the regular, the book club regulars, Alex and Dennis and Zenor. 
chance to talk about Thomas Pynchon's classic postmodern satire, The Crying of Lot 49, which tells the wonderfully unusual story of Oedipus Moss, first published in 1965, when her ex-lover, wealthy real estate tycoon Pierce Inverarity dies and designates, designates her the co-executor of his estate, Oedipa is thrust into a paranoid mystery of metaphors, symbols, and the United States Postal Service. Traveling across Southern California, she meets some extremely interesting characters and attains a not inconsiderable amount of self-knowledge. So, how are you guys doing tonight? I'm great. <laughs> Excellent. It's very good. Okay, so Alex, let's start with you. You you said that this was your favorite pension book, and I, I just thought that would be a good place to start. Why is that? Um, well, it's probably one of the of his books prior to the twentieth first century. It's probably his most accessible and profound at the same time it marries the the um highest brow of pension's typical style to the more down-to-earth sort of it marries that highbrow style to a more down-to-earth narrative and um it just contains some of the finest passages of writing uh that I've ever read. I just love the prose. I love the style. And, you know, Gravity's Rainbow and others are, are really uh, choppy and kind of fragmented. And so it, this one is just so elegant and it's so short, obviously. That's the most, uh, it's more like a novella. And I think it, he said it was a short story originally um, that went along. And so, yeah, for the, all those reasons, it, it's it's my favorite Pension novels. When did you first encounter it? Um, sometime in college, um, probably through my interest in David Foster Wallace, because everybody always compares him to Thomas Pynchon, and so I went after looking at Thomas Pynchon, and then I started looking, reading the books, and it wasn't until about 2015 that I actually read the book and kind of grokked it for what it is, because it was... Really, it's having been interested in sync and conspiracy theory. If you're not interested in those things, it's kind. Of, I'm. It's probably not a very interesting book. Um, maybe that's probably not true because it's very famous. But if you're not, if you're really invested in it, if you really feel like Oedipus Moss or on that journey, um, then it just it, it has a profound impact on on the on your psyche and it's like it's so prescient that he wrote it in like the early 60s when it's it describes the reality of today better than any anything being made today um and so yeah i thought it was pretty remarkable that it i mean it, it was he's writing about the moment as it's happening you know so he's not writing he's not looking back but he's like fully in that moment um, mm -hmm. So, totally. Dennis, you, this was your first time to this, correct? To Crying of Lot 49? Yes. Yes, yeah, yes. 
And I, but I was, I really enjoyed Inherent Vice, and I've re- gone through portions of Gravity's Rainbow. But um, yeah, no, I loved this I, the landscape of California. Um, uh, you know, it's such a rubric. It's such a like I had been emailing me emailing Alex earlier, not only because Alex has voiced some opinions about the possible real identity or who who Thomas Pynchon really might be, or if it's even it's an amalgamation of other people or if he's real, because it's just, it's such a code. There's such a code language to it. Now, I'd, I'd love Zenora's opinion if whether he's conscious of this or if this is his medium, he's has such a grasp of this code medium because it, does a lot of Joyce types things about um, bending time uh, or our, our or what time is. I don't. But and you know, I was thinking. I don't know. There's so much that could be said about this book, but I was also thinking about the the f- French uh, or I think was he a British of the same name who. Um, was like a disinformation agent, and he—I think he was also the author of *Beauty and the Beast*. Um, is that right? Early 1700s. So there's another Thomas. Same with the same name. So. Oh, I didn't know that. I think it's P I C H O N. Huh. Well, so for me, my first time through was a little rough, and it it seemed like i don't know your guys's experience the first time you walk through the courier's tragedy but it's like when i'm when i'm going through that section of the book i i do not know what the hell's going on cuz the twists and <laughs> the, there's yeah. so many twists and turns and that was kind of like the the kernel of the whole experience cuz it's like there's something here i'm not really tracking it but i'm interested yeah <laughs> But this, sure. the second time through, I really got it, and it's like, oh, I understand because this is basically like her sink web that she's completely exploring, and the one thing leads her to the next thing, and it's a lot of intuition, and she's going, you know, like she's totally propelled, and just, but it's it's ex- ex- exciting and fascinating because, you know, it's not a virtual exploration. She's actually, it's more like a private detective where she's sleuthing out the the sinks and exploring you know in your in your introduction you mentioned the bone you said (laughs) i wrote this down because you wrote down boat you said bone barrier and uh um that's california it's like this barrier point where you can it's a filter you can go in and out of it like the like the bones used to make the filters in the cigarettes in the story like (laughs) you know it's in the the yeah, this barrier point that can, it's an entry and exit point. And the culture of yo-yo-dying exists on that, that membrane, you know. Well, why don't we walk but, the listeners through it a little bit? Yep. We'll leave that to you, Zanor, but you can tell us your opinion right off the bat if you'd like. Well, no, I was going to, uh, was going to uh, comment on what uh, Dennis said, the, the question um, that you brought up about... Is is he intentional? Uh, intentional yes. about all this this code stuff, and uh, 
that, yeah, that's a big question for me too. And I think he's like, um, similar to what Joyce is doing in the wake with, um, he's just making like Joyce is just making, uh, linguistic puns that sort of resonate <laughs> off of each other. And, and in so many different combinations that he can't possibly have intended at all. And, and he admits that, that it's, it's, it's like the AOP that's coming through his writing. But I, I thought that with, uh, with this book, too, that Pynchon is not doing it so much with puns, so that the puns are sort of interacting with each other, but he's doing it with, with uh, his symbols. And there are so many symbols in this book that uh, the way that they sort of resonate off of each other changes every time you, you read the book. And, it, and it's open-ended like that. Like, um, this time was my, th- my third time through it, and I, I kept finding m- more like different connections that I'm, I'm sure he's not, he didn't intend all of them to be there, but the way he's written it as, as an open text, uh, sort of an open text of symbolism that all of these are, all of these connections are there if he wanted them or not, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, Now, are you talking about like the characters' names or? well, Well, just everything like, uh, like all the different, like, all the symbolism in the book, like even, yeah, characters' names for sure, and then because uh, I could the, see how they might the be bones a... and the nymphs and and everything else that comes up, the uh, the, the, oh, the waste and the postal system and yeah, it, all everything. There there are so many it's symbols tr- in this book, so many tropes. images and symbols. Yeah, Alex, tropes, right? Oh, yeah, well, it's, uh, it, that's just another word. I I, I like. I don't know what you would say, how to describe this difference between a symbol and a trope, but... Trope, uh, tropes are basically figures of speech, right? Um, okay. Like uh, metaphors, etc. But uh, it, but definitely that's like any any metaphor is, is also a, a symbol, right? So, yeah. I was so just think, thinking about it because you, you're exactly right. And it's like, reminds me of chess because chess is known as one of the most complex things but it's just some something made up of a few small parts and so when you have a object that is just sort of you have th- two or three different elements that are working together they're very simple in themselves but once they start to uh, uh, be mashed together they actually I'm thinking of a video game really where you have like a, something like Super Mario where you, you can jump you can move forward you can you know, shoot fire with like single little action <laughs> or are things that combine to this work of like complex reality where every single time you do it, you go through it, it's different and it's creating a new world. And I'm just looking at this, yeah. this repeated, repeated phrase in the book, which is, shall I project a world? Yeah. Which yeah. She writes in her memo book over and, and, wow. and and then that that uh, that connects up. That's a symbol that connects up with a quote that that Doug just read about the uh, the director of the play being the projector, right? He's yeah. Um, and so the, then the play itself is is the book, the crying of Lot Forty Nine, and and then uh, it's all about the book itself is about her her hunt for meaning and and almost well not almost like entirely being overwhelmed by meaning. Mm-hmm. Like, as 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 many of us have been probably. <laughs> it's a total. It's an acid book. I yeah. think is a way to think yeah. about it, just because. 
it's you know cotemporaneous with the peak of acid before you know the summer of love and everything before the explosion it was just when it was just kind of simmering underneath the, the surface of everything yeah that's yeah. The, uh, the the time is is extremely important like he's capturing a certain time and he's intentionally doing it and almost almost as if he knows what's coming down the yeah. tubes before it happens right like uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> so so he's talking he's talking about how Edipa Mosque is going through the uh, the campus at Berkeley and it's right at the the height of the free speech <laughs> movement and and she's like she's just a few years older than them like she's 28 and like yeah. obviously those those people are of, of college age right and she's saying that there's this huge change that's happening that she doesn't really know what's going on it's like uh it's a, it's a real, something is happening and you don't know what it is. <laughs> Do you, Miss Mass? <laughs> and Oedipa's husband, Mucho Mas, has that, um, that part that you also highlighted in, in your article, Zanor, where he just, he is on acid and he's, yeah, yeah that, and he describes it in the, this, yeah, he, that's, and, a, and, that's a meaningful point. And then he, uh, he also ties it. Uh, he ties acid directly back to MK Ultra, and then and then prior to that, uh, Nazi uh, <laughs> yeah. Nazis experiments with mind control. Like Doctor Hilarious is the uh, is the link to all of that. You know, like he like he's he's already is the the wild thing about this book is that he's already got the whole conspiracy of the 1960s there. And then he deconstructs it at the same time. Like he goes beyond it already at that point, you know. <laughs> and then all his other books are kind of like uh, um, riffs on, on, on these ideas, right? It's mm -hmm. incredible. Yeah. Okay, so for listeners, I'm just going to walk them through. So Oedipa Moss, and I'm I was really thrown at the beginning of this because, so the way it starts, it colored my idea of who she is, this summer afternoon she come came home from a tupperware party and she had a little too much uh kirsch yeah <laughs> right and so i'm trying you know it's just like california housewife right and then and then uh what happens is she, she gets a call and she ends up being uh the co-executor for an old lover's estate, Pierce Inverarity. And that name just seems so fraught at the same time, too. Mm. Like, I want Inverarity to mean something, but I can't... I, can't, I know. I can't suss it out. But so that brings her to, from the San Francisco Bay Area to Southern California, to this place called... Uh, oh, my gosh. Uh, San Narciso. San Narciso, yeah. Yeah, and she goes to the Echo Courts... You know, so like Narcissus and uh, and Echo, and it, like it's uh -huh. that that myth is there, but it's this idea of looking at yourself and trying to for you know self exploration. But so anyway, that after that she's she hooks up with the other co executor Metzger, this uh, childhood you know like child actor, and they baby Igor, baby Igor, and like she <laughs> hangs out with the paranoids, you know. So like she, it's like the adventures, you know. This this ex lover dies, and then she goes on these different adventures to try and understand the nature of his estate, which is kind of, you know, capitalism in California. So you have a, a company like, um, uh, JPL Yo -Yo or something. Dan. Yeah. Oh yeah, JPL for sure. Yeah. And then, and yeah, but so 
it, it seems like the heart of the book is this this uh, what she you know paranoid conspiracy about uh, an alternate mail system. You know, and so everything leads her. <laughs> such a banal. I love how this is. You have this like epic kind of. Oh, it's a conspiracy of the most banal. Right. Thing, which whoa, is whoa. also the most profound thing. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's seeming control of information. Banal. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. I th- I think it probably seems more banal to us now with uh, with the sure. internet. Like nobody nobody thinks sure. about snail mail anymore but at, at that time it, yeah that's that's the entire flow of information right mm-hmm. um god i don't want to derail this too much but the, in the heart of your article zanor you um were um uh, the maximum information uh, versus entropy and right. uh heat loss um right. not only in the story but also in your article that really struck me is fascinating because Right now, there are people talking about um, entering a mini ice age as po- as a like a solar minimum period, which and we're also experiencing this maximum information data moment. Like we're kind of living in that, and yeah. or potential in and it's he's he's again whether it's through the the description of this. Um, box <laughs> that that has some sort of psychic the measurement <laughs> the nefestus machine yeah <laughs> like i don't know how we bridged into that or discussed that but uh like it's just remarkable like not only prediction of mk ultra or this outlying of that narrative but you know this is like a, a pinnacle world moment <laughs> like or maybe yeah. it always is but yeah. Do, yeah. do you know what I'm leading towards there? Yeah. 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 Sure. I'm. I'm. Uh, yeah. I, it's so hard to not to just stay in the book and not and not go into these other books either, right? But uh, okay. Um, like like for, have you guys read Bleeding Edge? For yeah. Example? Yeah. Um, yeah. So so Bleeding Edge is like the best nine uh, eleven conspiracy book out there, like fiction and nonfiction, because he's he's tying it. He's tying the whole 9/11 conspiracy into the the dot com crisis and saying basically, Amazing. basically the uh, 9/11 was a product of the dot com crisis. It it was it was part of the same movement. Um, Zanor, and- that's crazy because through the course of reading this, I kept thinking about cryptocurrency as being like a next phase of this same, like. The, the 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 next crisis will be, <laughs> you know, I don't, I just it, 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 that dot com element. I just I've I could could feel that in this as too. Like, um, but also you know, uh, Christopher oh, Knowles yeah. has been on that tip big time, so it's in on my mind. But um, yeah, yeah. The other interesting thing for me was, <laughs> did you guys have you ever bumped into James Glick's? the information and so it's nonfiction pop science book about like claude shannon and information theory and uh it's just it was so fascinating because i thought that james glick was really putting a lot of unique ideas together for the first time but 
it's all in this book in 1960. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. 1965, you know, Maxwell's Demon and Entropy and all like the Philip K. Dick stuff that I just love. It's it's all there. You know, it's like, what the heck? It's all there. And yeah. this was also like a big deal, like as terms of a book pension. And he was a real phenomenon. I mean, this guy, was this, this stuff was not like a fringe book you know this was a a mainstream book and it's yeah like you said it's all there it was all right there smack in the middle (laughs) incredible really it was a mainstream book wow well sure i might not be maybe well i think for one thing literature had a much bigger kind of place in culture at the time i think Yeah, yeah so like you know, it was reviewed in the New York Times and well publicized. He was he was kind of like you know a David Foster Wallace type, like being published. Mm-hmm. And he was also had that recluse kind of uh, thing going on where they, nobody knew much about him. So right. and, and it kind of built and built until Gravity's Rainbow came out. And uh, so it was always kind of I think like a cultural moment and acknowledged. It wasn't obscure. I could be wrong though. I'm not a I'm not completely positive on that. Regardless, the point stands. It's all there. It's all in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to point out because the crypto, the crypto cubrology, cubrologist in me <laughs> could not go without um, mentioning that the Nefastus machine is first introduced to Oedipa by a character named Stanley Kotex. Yes. <laughs> yes. Stanley K. Yes. And uh, Kotex is apparently a pun on... Tampons. Yeah, exactly. So that's kind of amusing. But um, yeah, it's a Stanley K that is one. And she, he's the first one, I think, that she sees drawing the post horn. I think he's the only person... I might be wrong on this. Somebody correct me if I am. That he's the only person in the book that's shown drawing the post horn as opposed to like wearing it or seeing it. I might be wrong. But anyway, mm. that whole idea of him, the Stanley K is drawing the, the horn. He's sort of like spinning this thing. And she, and aside from that, he kind of acts as her gateway kind of into the, the world of, of waste and the third and taxes stuff mm-hmm. by what he tells her and where he leads her. Um, and so I saw, I, I just saw, I just see so much cryptocubrology in this book that it, it's it's stunning. It's stunning. Zenor, you outlined the 49 information. I'm curious. I'm, I'm maybe you could go over that real quick. But I also wondered if Alex saw any similar number. I mean, well, yeah, I did. That was something I didn't mention um, just now. Is that there's a when she meets Stanley Kotex, he. She tell he tells her to go see uh, Nefastus because of to 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 make a good sensitive, which is basically a way of him like abusing women, I guess. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> he he tells her first that um, how to write to him. So okay, sorry, I'm bungling this all. So he tells her how to write to him, and he tells her to write to box five seventy three. And then she 
right immediately after that, he like realizes he said too much, and uh, he kind of backs away. But she he tells her box five seven three, and it's funny because um, I don't know if any of you follow Lauren Coleman, um, the director of the cryptozoology uh, museum and Twilight language guy. But he, he had a post over Christmas about the movie Shop Around the Corner with Jimmy Stewart, um, which was a 1940, 1940, I think. And it, it, it involves, it's actually the movie that the Tom Hanks You've Got Mail is based on. But going back to our postal thing, this is all postal. <laughs> no way. So the Shop Around the Corner, Jimmy Stewart, there, he has a secret love affair with a pen pal with this woman. And the, the, the box is box 237. As in The Shining, it's box two three seven that they write to each other, and so you have at the end Jimmy Searts talking about box two three seven. Are you the woman from the girl from box two three seven? And so anyway, wow. and then that movie itself is a remake of a movie called In the Good Old Summertime with Judy Garland, famously Dorothy Wizard of Oz, and in that movie it's the same thing. And Judy Garland says box two three seven. So you have Judy Garland. And Jimmy Stewart saying two three seven in this movie came out forty years ago. So anyway, he so anyway, back to Crying Lot forty nine. Stanley Kotex tells her to write to box five seventy three. And I like in cryptocurology I take numbers, I break them apart to find this 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 right, the repeating series. And it just happens, just so happens that five seventy three is the sum of one hundred fifty three and four hundred and twenty. So it's 420 plus 153, and those are my two first two cryptocubrology numbers. And that comes from Stanley Kotex. So mm. that's that's a, that's a, one aspect of, it, of that. What about 49? Oh, I didn't talk about 49, did I? <laughs> I'll let Nor take that because he has his. Yeah, um, I, I read a, a, an essay on, uh, on Lot 49. By this guy, uh, which is named Pierre Yves Patillon, or something, and he said he said that the the story takes place in in forty nine days, which I'm not sure. It, I I don't know how he he calculates that, right? But uh, but then um, so forty nine days or fifty days is is the day of Pentecost, right? Pentecost is the fiftieth day, and then forty nine days is also the time spent in the bardo after you die in uh, Tibetan Buddhism. Mm. Um, so the idea is that uh, the whole time is, well, the, the day of Pentecost is, is basically the bardo that Christ was in 50 days after his, uh, his, his death and rebirth, I guess. And then that is paralleled in, the, in Tibetan Buddhism with the 49 days. So she's, uh, Ida Pamas is sort of in this, uh, this bardo, this sort of in-between state, in-between uh, uh, living and dying or uh, knowing something and not knowing something like this, this whole sort of uh, threshold or liminal state. Um, but then also the, the day of Pentecost is also uh, biblically, it's related to the, uh, um, the 50 days or 49 or 50 days that Moses spent on Mount Sinai before he had his revelation and received the, uh, the books of the law. Right. And then, uh, and then also, closer to our time, you have Strassman, Richard Strassman, um, <laughs> who's working on DMT and finding that DMT 
um, presents itself in the embryo about the same amount of time, 49 or 50 days. Um, so all of that, I think, goes in, in into this book. I don't, like, obviously, Pynchon didn't know about DMT at that time. but uh, He probably know more, more about it than I do. Maybe he did. <laughs> what about her name? So I my take or feeling, my feeling was is that she is kind of a stand-in for Southern California, which was kind of the spirit of that age, you know, like the, it was the United States. So, you know, what, how this is, but there, there was kind of like this timelessness too, when you talk about like land speculation going back to the, the 1800s and these goofy naval battles. Yeah. Like the that Pe- was crazy. Peter, Peng- Peter Penguin's society. Um, <laughs> but what about Oedipa? So, like, that's the thing. Does, can we... Does, I, does I it, have a thing. What do you think? Their name is Oedipa Moss, M-A-A-S. And this actually ties, gets, ties, um, brings Alistair Crowley into it. Because, I don't know if you guys noticed, but there's one mention of the year 1904 in there. Right. right. Yeah. Which yeah. is a which you find in all of Pynchon's books in the in the 60s. He he's constantly talking about the year 1904, which is very interesting because that's the uh, year Crowley wrote or just, channeled um, the Book of the Law. Just to let them know about the 1904, and then you can go on. Is is that uh, in in the book uh, the date from 1904 was this piece of Mexican anarchist uh, oh, publication yeah. that was lost in the mail. And it was from 1904. It's <laughs> so funny because when I read that, I immediately thought of the – there's a uh, – Gordon White had a guest not too long ago d- talking about uh, Crowley's uh, both West Coast and Mexican adventures. And I just imagined that Mexican character having an interaction with Crowley. So it's funny that we're going down this way. But, um, yeah. Cool. Keep going, Alex. Yeah, that's perfect. Um so Pynchon brings 1904 into it, and that kind of implies the age of Horus, right? Because that's yeah. that's when the age of Horus began, I, I think, um, or effectively anyway, in literature. And uh, so fast forward a few years, in 1948, um, another a disciple of Crowley, who is written a lot about by Kenneth Grant, who's more well-known, but he writes about this guy, Frater Ashad, who basically proclaimed that in addition to the age of Horus, there that Horus has a twin, and it's this other age, and it's the feminine side. It's the age of Maat, right. and M A A T. So Oedipa Maas, and uh, the age of Maat, and it's, it's this feminine sort of energy that's arising in tandem with the age of Horus. I think I've got that right. So that's kind of how I've always seen Oedipa Maas as like sort of embodying this occult Crowleyan style age of Ma in rising and sort of navigating her way through this world of Horus with all these men. These, yeah, these that makes a lot strange, of sense. These creepy, horrible men. And so that's point. kind of what I think. That's my it's, also, um, it's also, I was thinking, um, like, 
Oedipus, obviously, Oedipus. Yeah. Um, and then Mas, Mas is more. His, his, uh, her husband also gets, oh, always gets called <laughs> mucho, mucho Mas or much more, right? Um, but so it's sort of it's more more than the Oedipal, more than the Freudian. And the well, whole book is sort of a, a critique on Freud, and that's what hilarious <laughs> comes out at the end and says, yeah. uh, hilarious, who's this Freudian who was an ex-Nazi before? He got into Freud. His final revelation is um, if you have, forget about the reality principle, just go with your insanity. Don't let anybody else try to put it down, you know, like just go with it. And so that's, that's beyond, it. that's more than the Oedipal or more than Freud, you know. Oh, nice. Interesting. And then there's another, there's characters named, what is it, Mike Fallopian? And then there's also, there's a very brief character mentioned whose last name is Chingado, which in Spanish, ching, ching, like that that means to fuck. So like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> oh, and then there's K U C F, right? Yeah. I don't know what, what is it. K, no, K C U F. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but then I think in the press, you know, he makes a big deal of saying how the names don't mean anything, and so don't oh. read too much into it. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds was not about LSD. <laughs> I was just looking at it. There's there's another character called Mister Thoth. Yeah. 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 Foods or however the hell you actually pronounce it. So there's another kind of Crowleyan reference. I mean, it's obviously a reference to the the Egyptian god, but Crowley embodied that. And and just one quick more numerological thing is she. When he, she's talking to Mr. Thoth, he says, I was dreaming about my grandfather, a very old man, at least as old as I am now, 91. I thought when I was a boy that he had been 91 all his life. Now I feel as if I have been 91 all my life. And then he has a horse named Adolf. But he, so he, there's three mentions of 91, 91, 91, 91. And if you add 91, 91, 91, you get 273. And 273 is interesting, not just because it's 237 uh, rearranged, but because it's uh, related to the moon, and it is, happens to be that nine, 273 days is exactly nine months, um, which is the period of gestation. Um, so in speaking of the lot 49, and so, so maybe this the ending, which I hope we can talk about, um, where she's sitting there waiting to, for, to find out who's going to bid on on lot 49 maybe that is the 49th day of gestation and that she's waiting for the soul to enter the body basically yeah the, of, the of dmt whatever. flash right <laughs> yeah yeah that's what she's waiting for or she's she's waiting to enter in a, a new body from the uh, from the bardo right yeah totally yeah maybe but the the bidders on lot 49 are the readers of the book right yeah huh. well this is lot like that was the thing like you realize that this is lot 49. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. that, that, that we enter into it on some level somehow. So whenever I hear the crying of lot 49, I think of the word scry. So and then yeah. the scrying of lot 49, which yeah. means to foretell the future or um, in a crystal ball, apparently. So like look into the crystal ball and see the future is scrying. And so I see it, see it in that sense, too. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I um, I put that at the end of the 
what I, that article oh, did, too. But oh, the, you probably got it out of your thing then. The scrying, the scrying of Lot Forty Nine, or the scrying of Plot Forty Nine, because it's mm-hmm. a it's a plot, lot and yeah. a plot, right? And then the lot is another symbol too, because uh, mucho mas. His his previous job was was as a used car yeah. salesman on a lot that made him go insane because it kept flashing this sign that said. Nada, 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 nothing, <laughs> nothing, 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 all the time. And he, he lost his mind because of it. And that's yeah. such a spiraling or circle effect because the book starts w- about him talking about that that um, car lot, and then and you know, and then we're ending with the lot, waiting for the lot. Yeah, it's yeah. The thing that I guess is curious to me is how the core of this is tragedy. Even though it feels like kind of a romp, but so you have this play kind of this. I mean, so Oedipa, Oedipus, this is a tragedy. Like there's there's a tragedy in all of Pynchon's work. I think you know there's something like Inherent Vice is about this moment that is is being lost. It, you know, it's like going back to, to the moment where where everything was you know it's like it's the innocence lost in the 60s kind of thing where Mm. inherent vice felt like to me looking back at the moment that was gone after the fact and wondering and wondering how it all slipped away but this is fascinating because in this book you know it's like like the tragedy is unfolding in real time in this book it's almost as if he's saying that that moment never existed Mm -hmm. even from its inception Huh. Wow. Yeah. yeah, on one level, but on another level, no, it's not. You know, like he. Uh, that's it's that's why there's always this intertwining between the Tristero and then the the turn in taxis. Like it's it's like it's not so cut and dry as saying that uh, either either one is dominant or even that they're separate. Well, so uh, like back to the the Courier's tragedy. <laughs> Which you would say it is just so ridiculous. <laughs> uh, could you take the convolutions apart and try and understand it? Because like somebody did, and they basically broke it down and said, "Well, if you follow it, it it means blah," which kind of says something about the whole thing. I can't remember what it was though. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about, Snore? Yeah, I'm not. Um, I I wouldn't be able to summarize it like you're like you're saying, but uh, I I I would say that the uh, like the convolutions themselves are what he's pointing to, right? Like it 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 doesn't so matter about trying to figure it out. It's it's the fact that it is so convoluted, right? And it's so it's similar to the book itself, right? Um, like you could get in there and try to work it out, and it does it does work out because he he crafted it so well that it it does. But on another level, he's just he's just presenting it as this convoluted mess, right? And and that's how we're supposed to accept it as um, kind of like like the big sleep or something like that. <laughs> you know? The Courier's mm. tragedy then, for all its twists and turns, only has one bit of information to convey. 
Tristero will betray anyone or kill whomever to accomplish its own mysterious goals, which can run to the magnitude of destroying an entire city. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I mean, take that with a grain of salt. That's somebody else's opinion, but I thought that was kind of interesting. So, but there's something fascinating about what you just said, Zenora, about how there is this interplay of the you know, it's like the yin and the yang of these two competing systems. Yeah. I I thought this um, this quote is so, from the book, is so uh, central, I think, or uh, central to me at least, I don't know. Um, but when she's having the big revelation or kind of non-revelation, like she's, she's, she's so mired in her own confusion, she doesn't know what's going on. But she says, um, either you have stumbled indeed without the aid of LSD or other indole alkaloids onto a secret richness and concealed density of a dream onto a network by which X number of Americans are truly communicating whilst reserving their lies, recitations of routine, arid betrayals of spiritual poverty for the official government delivery system, may, maybe even onto a real alternative to the exitlessness, to the absence of surprise of, to life that harrows the head of every American you know, and you too, sweetie. That's one, one possibility. Or you are hallucinating it, as another, or... A plot has been mounted against you so expensive and elaborate, involving <laughs> items like the forging of stamps and ancient books, so <laughs> labyrinthine that it must have meaning beyond just a practical joke. That's the other one. And then the last one, or you are fantas uh, fantasizing some such plot, in which case you are a nut, Oedipa, out of your skull. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's, those four, those four things still exist, right? Like when, like people now on the web, everybody's, um, not everybody, but a certain section of the population is so obsessed about uh, QAnon. You know, have you guys have all heard about that? Right? <laughs> oh yeah, and sure. it's the same. It's the same kind of thing, right? Like either this exists, or we're being set up to make it look like it exists, um, or or we're hallucinating, or or uh, or we're hallucinating that it's a plot, you know. And uh, um, and uh, these four still exist. These four uh, possibilities. And the digital exist. realm is perfect for that, you know. The digital realm is perfect for those four s scenarios. Yeah, and and it, and it can't it can't ever be resolved. That's the whole thing. Like people are people are are really trying to find the truth of it all and, and et cetera, right? And it, it, it just breaks down. It's, it's always going to, uh, it's always going to break into or, or conclude in conundrum, you know? Like it's, um, and the, the best that we can hope for is this state without any sort of foundation at all, you know? You know, and, and I don't know if we stated emphatically enough how, ahead of i mean so just how he nails it in this book so you know the idea of networked information and and as she's kind of zooming above san narciso and she's looking at it like a like a you know like a computer wafer or something you know she's, yeah 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 and so it's like and she's but she you know it 
the uh, analogies transistors you know it's like then at the end of the book he, he, she talks about these ones and zeros like floating down oh yeah uh, totally around her. like exactly yeah. like in in the matrix you know the, the movie the matrix right it's, it's yeah. all, I wanted to, like I wanted matrix to read, copied it i wanted to read this last little bit that kind of it's a perfect companion to what you just read thing it's just towards the end that really sums it up and that sort of adds a wrinkle that I want to mention, too. So I'm going to read this. For it was now like walking among matrices of a dr- great it. digital computer, the zeros and ones twinned above, hanging like balanced mobiles left and right, ahead, thick, maybe endless. Behind the hieroglyphic streets, there would either be a transcendent meaning or only the earth. In the songs Miles, Dean, Serge, and Leonard, the paranoid, sang was either some fraction of the truth's numinous beauty, as Mucho now believed, or only a power spectrum. Tremaine, the swastika salesman's reprieve from Holocaust, was either an injustice or the absence of a wind. The bones of the GIs at the bottom of Lake Inverarity were there either for a reason that mattered to, to the world or for skin divers and cigarette smokers, ones and zeros. So did the couples arrange themselves. At Vesperhaven House, either an accommodation reached in some kind of dignity with the angel of death or only death, and the daily tedious preparations for it. Another mode of meaning behind the obvious or none. Either Oedipa in the orbiting ecstasy of a true paranoia or a real Tristero. For there either was some Tristero beyond the appearance of the legacy America, or there was just America. And if there was just America, then it seemed the only way she could continue and manage to be at all relevant to it was as an alien unfurrowed assumed full circle into some paranoia that's just such an amazing passage that's one that's one of my favorites yeah and it's like the thing i want to bring up is this is this emphasis on america because like obviously pension's an american writer but his writing is about america and the place of america in history and what america really is because the the postal service it's really just it's kind of a cipher for the american government i mean america was created in the spirit of revolution supposedly you know is either it's either it's either (laughs) it's either there is a true revolution or it's a it's a fantasy and we just don't seem to know how (laughs) or which um, and that debate is raging today with QAnon and everything. Mm. Uh, so, and, uh, what place um, does America have in history? And that's it. Yeah, it's also interesting that, uh, like, the reading about the whole history that um, is presented about Tristero and that uh, how it was active in Europe up until the 1848 revolutions, <laughs> which, which uh, it it implies that we're engineered by Tristero and they failed and then they moved their operations to uh, the America. States. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now that, that kind of thing like makes you like we were talking about who is pension and what is <laughs> that? It's like, if, if this, if, if this is real and we're not all hallucinating it and we want to entertain that idea, then is he, is he an agent of this, group <laughs> or something or is he is, is or is the group beyond the, the material and it's something that's using us as vessels for itself yeah it's not human at all right. i mean any, any, there's any any kind of way of thinking but it, it reminds me of in mason dixon 
which is the book I think Pynchon took the longest time to write. I think he started in the 60s and it didn't come out until the 90s. It starts off with an epigraph. No, wait. No, I'm thinking of Farina's book. Never mind. Never mind. Oh, that, that's, <laughs> that's something you could bring up, too, is Farina. Yeah. yeah, if I do. Yeah, Farina. Well, well it's, it's an epigraph to the book by Richard Farina, who was Thomas Pynchon's good friend. <laughs> Or died. Thomas Pynchon. Yeah. Or Thomas, or Thomas Pynchon, Pynchon. As I believe. Um, <laughs> but uh, his novel opens with an epigraph from, I think it's Benjamin Franklin, when he says, I must soon quit the scene, which is uh, a, from a letter he wrote to George Washington, I think, about having wow. to leave Paris um, because, and we all know these are, these are all, they're all Freemasons and and that comes in to, to Mason Dixon, Mason Dixon. <laughs> and so it's all in the, that's all about the beginning. So he, he, he does the 60s in Crime Lot 49, and he does World War II in Gravity's Rainbow. And then he goes back to the beginning of America with Mason Dixon and uh, shows it's all kind of of a piece. Uh, and Pierce, know. just to say, Pearson Verarity has a very Masonic type role as a sort of world builder and uh like there's there's one specific line i'm thinking about that i can't quote off the top of my head but it's like he's like this is what you're supposed to do as as this position is what he said you know <laughs> yeah exactly like he is um he's basically hce from finnegan's wake or you can uh you make the case that he's also like uh david bowie's character and the man who fell to earth <laughs> where he's like uh somebody like uh palmer eldritch in in dick's novels or even somebody like trump you know uh or stanley kubrick <laughs> stanley kubrick right and and then you have that line from uh i forget the character's name the 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 mexican anarchist uh about the anarchist miracle right and yeah. calling and calling inverarity an anarchist miracle because inverarity is acting at least she says he's acting in a way that uh, is is the complete archetype of the rich asshole American, uh, uh, American right? The, the gringo, the the, uh, the hyper rich gringo, um, and so that that's one way in which the anarchist miracle uh, reveals itself. And then the, the other way the anarchist miracle reveals itself is in the uh, in the ballroom dance of the uh, the deaf mutes. <laughs> and they're all just dancing each couple is just dancing however they want and, and none of them are, are collapsing into each other um, <laughs> but, but I think this is the uh, this is the other alternative maybe the, the fifth point right is to is to realize that you don't need to take a stand on any of those four and you can just accept it all as, as an anarchist miracle Well, let's call that the 42 minutes then, shall we? All right. Oh, there. Sure. <laughs>